Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Father, I just pray today that through my brokenness, that all of our hearts will hear and receive what you have for us. That we will not be stumbled um, by the things of man. That you would transcend my brokenness and our brokenness and that your revelation would proceed swiftly and unhindered and you will achieve the things that you want to. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to talk about prayer because the prayer guy is not here. The prayer guy is Jason Chua. Um, And it's very difficult to talk about prayer when you have a prayer guy in the church who all he talks about is prayer. Um, But primarily because prayer is something that very few people feel comfortable talking about in public. Prayer is something which exposes your internal reality, what you're going through, in a very vulnerable way. And the thing about prayer is the further you advance in this grace, the more you realize how far there is to go. Um, so, but I don't think it's hypocrisy for me to talk about prayer and to call the church back to prayer, not having attained a place of perfection because it never happens. And I feel like if I were to constrain myself to only talk about the subjects which I've attained perfection with, I wouldn't ever open my mouth. Um, so... Uh, it's in that vein that um, I would say, open your hearts. And I think a lot of things that I'm going to say, we already know this in our minds. But, so this is not a sermon, this is not a teaching session. Um, can we just say that this is like a time in the family and I'm just sharing about what I really feel like God has for us in this time. And you know, when I was preparing for this sermon, I just felt a covering um, a real covering that is a safe place. Like, everyone wasn't sitting there evaluating and say, okay, is there anything smart this guy has to say? But it was really from a place to say, hey, um, I value you as a part of the family. Um, and everyone on the, in the table at the family has something of value to say. And I've been really searching the Lord. Um, and I don't know whether you notice, um, in the church today, and our church, there have been spontaneous, I would say, wells of prayer that have been emerging. And this is not orchestrated by the church leadership. Um, Andre was also like noting with kind of surprise and wonder almost that spontaneously there have been groups and pockets of people gathering to pray. And I feel like just a prophetic swirl, almost like the Lord is stirring this congregation for prayer. But what is it about prayer, right? What is happening? I used to think that prayer was the means in which we move the hand of God to do something. That if we were to gather and to humble ourselves to pray, that God will finally do something. And he was waiting for us to get our act together. But Lou Engel said this, and, and it really stirred me. He said, the movements of prayer are like the birth pangs. The move of God is the coming baby. Now how many know that the birth pangs don't give rise to the baby. It's not you pray and this birth pang comes and you create the baby because of your numerous birth pangs. But it's because of the imminent coming of the baby that birth pangs come. 
It's the coming move of God, I believe, that God is about to do something that people are being led to pray spontaneously. And so when I look that, I see as a sign. I see as a sign that God is going to do something. And it's kind of a redundant role, but really I'm standing here and saying, hey, look, God is doing this. Um, get on board or be aware or be part of it. You know, um, don't wait for the baby to come. Participate in this birth pain you will because it is your inheritance and it is your prize as part of this house. Like God is going to do something. I was worshipping the other day. I always stand here and I always worship here on the Sunday morning. And as I was worshipping, the Lord just dropped this phrase in my heart. Call my church back to prayer. And then I got kind of excited. I was like, okay, I'm going to score some people now. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about prayerlessness. Um, I don't know how uh, many of you don't know me well, but I, I grew up listening to um, Leonard Ravenhill, Paul Washer, uh, A.W. Tozer, all these Charles Finney. And then they, all they do is school people, and I love it. I just sit there under their admonishment and I feel so refreshed and shaken from my complacency. One of my favorite lines, uh, Leonard Ravenhill, was like, you want to know how popular the, the preacher is? You, you see how many people show on a Sunday morning. You want to know how popular the youth director is? Come on Saturday afternoon, see how many people show up. But you want to see how popular God is? Come on a Tuesday prayer meeting. Huh? Are you all like that? <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> But like, no, but I, I so I was like, I was like, okay, God, I'm going to prepare all these lines, you know, I've been waiting for this, call the church back to prayer, confront the prayerlessness. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, Second Chronicles 7.14, my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. How humble are we? You know, and then like they'll call us back to that place of prayer. But about like last week, my mom gave me this book by Andrew Murray, entitled Humility. <laughs> I think, I, think I, I told her about my, my intentions, and she's like, here, why don't you read this book? <laughs> and I was really, I haven't finished reading the book, but I'm halfway through, Andrew Murray was talking about, and, and he was just quoting the Bible already, he was talking about, um, when Jesus was talking about Pharisee, he was saying that there was a Pharisee who came up to God and said, oh, I thank God that I give a tenth of all I earn and I pray three times a day, and I'm not like that guy. And the other guy comes out and says, have mercy on me, O Lord. He beat his breast, and he says, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And then Jesus asks a rhetorical question, who do you think walked away justified? Um, and at that point, it just hit me like a, like a truck that I was a Pharisee. Um, and I thought that when God told me, call the church back to prayer, um, I had mistakenly thought that I was not part of that church. But, and so I, I just felt a conviction that, and I think we should take it in this vein, that this call is not me calling you, but it's the church calling all of us. And I think I feel this, this stirring in my heart as well. And I feel the inadequacy. I feel the weakness of my love, the fickleness of my desire towards God, and how that pales in comparison to his worth. Um, and it's that tension that we live in. Um, and so today, I think this is, this is what I'm talking about um, today, just to call you back to prayer. Um, and this is the message, really. Um, so my mom gave me another book. 
actually before that, when, she, when I, was, I was talking about prayer, and she gave me this book called Prayer by Richard Foster. Um, it's a really good book, you should read it, because I'm not going to teach anything about prayer today. You're going to walk away and say, I didn't learn anything about prayer. But this guy summarizes every aspect of prayer. He teaches so many things about prayer. But the one thing that really struck me when I turned the page, the first thing, the, the title quote of the book, if you would, was a quote by St. Augustine. Um, and it says this, true whole prayer is nothing but love. And I started to go on this quest when the Lord told me, call my church back to prayer. What is prayer? What is this prayer that you're calling your church to? And I felt like I needed to ask God, what is this prayer? And that was the answer that he says, it's love. Prayer is nothing but love in its essence. Prayer is not shouting, intercession, the prayer for healing, standing in the gap, repentance, all of those things, yes. But what is the spirit of prayer? It's nothing but love. And so then the Lord started to expand. He started to tell me more things. He says, call the church back to love. Um, all that he requires of us is for us to love him. And so the, the teachers of the law came up to Jesus and said, teacher or rabbi, what is the greatest command? What is the greatest commandment of the law? And you know, usually when you ask Jesus a question, he like asks you another question, or he like uh, doesn't answer the question, you know? Um, for one of the few times, I believe, he actually answers the question straight. And usually when he answers the question straight, it's because you're asking the right question. Often when he doesn't answer your question, it's because he's answering the question that you ought to have asked. Don't do that in your GP. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so he answers straight and he says, Jesus replied, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and in some other gospels, all your strength. This is the first and greatest command. So I was thinking in the Torah, in the Jewish law, there are so many laws and the Pharisees started to add so many regulations to it that it became impossible for you to live a perfect life. It was impossible. But when he asked Jesus, out of all of these things, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, it's love. See, when I look at the Torah, I realize that I will fail and I'll fall so many times, it's impossible for me to measure up. Isn't it liberating that the foremost thing that God requires us is the love? That out of all these things, all the things that you're supposed to do, the core of it, God says, hey, look, I want you to love me. Isn't it liberating that that is the law. The law gave way to love. That in his love, he would come to die on the cross to pay for our sins. So that all the inadequacies of all the tiny regulations and footnotes in the law which we fail to abide by, he will take care of it. And all that he requires of us today is love. But it's a wholehearted love. So I started to ask God, how do I love God with all of my being? It's, it's actually a difficult thing to do. How do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength? And there are many aspects to it. Uh, in scripture, it says, if you love me, you obey my commands. If you love me, you love my church. There are many aspects to it, but today I really feel like God is highlighting specifically in this hour for this church, the call back to prayer. We love him by depending on him, like a leaning on him. And I feel like he desires the church to come back to this first commandment, this great command, expressed in utter dependence in prayer. And the prayer that I'm talking about is not a prayer for blessing. It's not a prayer for guidance. It's not a prayer that we often pray for peace, for joy, 
for healing and all of these things. But I'm talking about a desperation for Him. I'm talking about a burning desire that there is no other means in which we can survive apart from God and His intimacy. And the realization that what we have is not enough. I recall a time when I was in university um, and I would cycle to the lectures and I will have my headphones on and I will listen to worship music. Um, and it's kind of dangerous really because you can't really hear anything and it's all on full blast. And I remember I was cycling there, I was listening to the music and a desire for God just came upon me. I just felt a palpable desire in my heart that my heart almost like it hurt. It was expanding. It was like going to explode. And I just felt a desire for God that I never felt before. And I just started weeping. And I was cycling down and I was just weeping. And I was like, I don't know whether people think I'm crazy. But like, clearly a road hazard. And I was just weeping and weeping. Um, but the thing about it is that I never felt more alive. I never felt more alive in the, I call it the blessed agony of desire. It's, it's a blessed agony of desire because this desire can be fulfilled. And it was like I was in that place where my heart's desire was expanding and God would fill it almost instantaneously. And His presence of filling it would expand my heart even more. And the question is, how much of, can I expand my heart to take in God because God is infinite? And, and I felt like the psalmist, he was saying, as the deer pants for the streams of living water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Where can I go to meet God? And I was just obsessed. I was obsessed with God. I was crying out for just more of Him. I was like, I don't even have something specific because I don't even know what aspect of Him I'm missing and I desire. But I just knew from what I tasted that I wanted more of Him. And it's that place. But for me, I realized that I neglected to stay in this place of utter dependence. It is my human tendency to stray away from Him. It's like as soon as we get the chance, like, like in Israel, read the Old Testament, I'm like, why Israel don't, don't just sort themselves out? Why do they like, they see the glory of God, right? And then like, you just wait, you just wait half a generation, one generation, they stray away from God. It's the plight of our human nature. I realize that that is a microcosm for the story of my life. That I see the glory of God, but my tendency is to stray away from Him. And that is, I ask myself, how? How is it that I can go and lead, lead this life where I have no hunger after I've tasted of His goodness? But you know, after you taste it, there's something in you that changes and almost like you feel like very sien. Like, there's nothing else that can really satisfy. And there's almost like a gap. And I think that's the reason why sometimes some of the Christians who have experienced deep places of God, sometimes they're very grumpy. They're like, uh. it's because they've walked away from that. If you're in that place, you are so joyful and you're so fulfilled. But it's a, I'm missing that and there's, there's something missing in me. And to me, actually, hunger is a sign of health. The moment you start to lose health and lose life, you lose your appetite. And it's true in the physical, and I think it's true in the spiritual as well. That sometimes it's a barometer for me. I ask myself, how hungry am I for God? It's like, when was the last time I've tasted of God? And if I can go days without tasting of Him and feasting on Him, surely I'm wasting away. Um, 
And I think a lot of us, we start to live in this place where I can do without God. Um, And the reason why we are prayerless in our lives is because we settle for a life that we can live in our own strength. If I settle for a life that doesn't require the supernatural intervention of God, I can live apart from prayer. But the reason, and I believe that's the reason why God in His mercy sends us trials. He sometimes sends us trials to shake us so that in His mercy we will return to Him in dependence. And I don't think we should feel bad that sometimes, you know, when things are going well, like we're like, hey, I don't want to pray. Then like, oh God, crisis. Then I turn to God in prayer. Sometimes if you feel, oh, I'm very hypocrite. Like, you only use God when you need Him, right? And like, preachers always scold you for that. And I think that's fair enough. But it's God in His mercy. When we take the perspective of God, what is happening is that God is saying, as a good father in my mercy, I'm going to shake your life so that you'll return to dependence on me because you are slowly dying in this life that you've settled to live. Um, And pride, as Hannah will know, is the great spiritual cancer that has plagued me. (laughs) Um, and, and Andrew Murray says this absolutely amazing thing. He says, we can progress so far in the spiritual graces and still have pride. Humility is like the crowning glory, the highest virtue of the Christian life, that you can progress on so many aspects and be used by God in so many ways, but still never come close to attaining this. Um, and he was saying, look at the disciples. The disciples were radical. They gave their lives up to follow Jesus. They claimed to be willing to follow him to death, even though when he got captured, then he bounced, they bounced at him. Uh, anyway, but he, they had that desire. You know, They were radical. They healed people. They cast out demons. They were teaching. And Jesus accepted them as the 12. But yet, just before he was due to be crucified in the place of highest humility that he would empty himself, they were arguing who is the greatest among them. It is possible to be used by God in such a mighty way, progress so much, yet be so lacking in the place of humility. Um, but Andrew Murray says this, the chief glory of man is but to empty ourselves so that God can fill us. There is no other great worth of man. There's nothing you can develop yourself more than to learn this grace to empty yourself so that God can fill you. I used to have this paradigm of self-development. I was like, I'm going to develop myself in so many aspects, neglecting the fact that actually my chief role and my main utility here on earth is to empty myself so that God can fill me. And from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel to the religious spirit that plagues our age today to try to earn our salvation, our natural bent of pride is to try to do it by ourselves. And it's the antithesis of the call today to return to utter dependence on God, to realize that we cannot do anything apart from God. And men have tried to build so many things apart from God. But when he comes again and we see everything in the light of eternity, and he shakes everything that cannot be shaken, and he shakes everything that can be shaken, so that everything that remains is only that which is unshaken, eternal and unseen, and he makes everything new, the question is, what will remain? Will my works that I achieve apart from prayer still remain? Would it matter? 
that I believe that there is nothing of eternal significance that will last in the kingdom that would have been achieved apart from prayer. Everything that you do apart from prayer, when you shake it, is gone. When he comes and the fire comes, it's gone. It'll be burned away. Why? Because the Lord will not allow his bride to build a kingdom apart from him. It has been his eternal design that his way requires his presence. His way requires his hand. He will call Abraham, a hundred-year-old man with his barren wife, to be a father of many nations. He will call a murderer, one who self-professed to be slow of speech, to confront the most powerful civilization in the form of Egypt and Israel and to lead a nation of slaves through a desert into the promised land. He will call a shepherd boy to confront a nine-foot giant with a slingshot. Walking with him necessarily requires utter dependence. If we, do, if we want to divorce ourselves from this utter dependence, we cannot walk with him. The life that he calls us to live will be impossible and ridiculous. It will be foolishness. Even Jesus, the Son of God, was not exempt from this dependence. In Philippians 2, it says, he did not consider equality with God something to grasp. It's, it's something that we have to study. What is it that Jesus had? In John 1, it says, he, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him, all things were created through Him and for Him. He sustains all of creation. In Him, there's omnipotence and omniscience. He knows everything. He can do everything. But He says He emptied Himself of that. He did not consider equality of God something to be held onto. He relinquished the prerogatives of divinity so that He could do it after dependence on God. And... It's crazy to think that if Jesus here on earth to fulfill his assignment had to empty of himself to walk utterly dependent on God that I can do it with any of my own strength. But it's scary. It's scary that we must lean on him. It's much more safe for me to lean on myself. But actually, if you think about it, that's crazy because you're not as dependable. Um, (laughs) What shall we do then? You know, um, so you're, you're hearing all these things, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like, I, I hope that I confuse you enough <laughs> so that you go to prayer. <laughs> you know, sometimes the message is very clear. Then you're like, oh, I got that. I understood premise, 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 conclusion, premise, premise, conclusion. And then you're like, oh, then what do I do? I'd rather just give you a mess of things and you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> And then you go back and you say, I need to pray. (laughs) See, the the road is narrow. A lot of people say the road is narrow. Jesus said the road is narrow. Um, And most people think, oh, the Christian life is really hard. But the road is not hard to find. The road is always in front of you. It's difficult, but it's not confusing. Don't mistake... The difficulty in applying yourself to the discipline of prayer or seeking the Lord for something which is really complicated and it's impossible to understand. It's so simple. It's like if you want to get $500 when you take IPPT, you run. You do interval training three times a week. It's not complicated. It's difficult. (laughs) And we don't do it. (laughs) It's the same thing of the Christian life. We know what we have to do. Come back to God in prayer. It's difficult, but it's not complicated. In, in Matthew 7, 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For anyone 
Who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. For which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask? And in Luke, it says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Why is it that he says, you know, there's the context of asking for bread and for fish, sustenance. Why is it that he says, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's because he knows that the ultimate need and the void of our soul is God himself. And he has answered that through the Holy Spirit. But anyone who has pursued the Christian faith in any seriousness at all will one day experience seasons of barrenness. And so I'm like kind of painting this picture, right, of me cycling down and like, oh, I love God, I love God, I desire Him. But that is not the complete story of the Christian faith. Anyone who's walked long enough with the Christian faith has at some point experienced a season of spiritual barrenness. I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about taking a walk, so to speak. (laughs) Um, I'm talking about a genuine time where you feel the presence of God almost depart from you. Now, this seems controversial, but if you read the Psalms, it's all over the shop. It's everywhere. And I want to encourage everyone who's going through a season of spiritual desolation that this is a mark of genuine pilgrimage. It is not a wandering. That if you seriously follow Christ, you will find yourself one day walk through this season. And it's not because you've wandered from the path. The path will lead you through that. What is this spiritual dependence? It's when you try to pray and you have no words. You open the Bible and you find it meaningless. You turn on the music, it fails to move your heart. You try to fellowship with believers, it fails to fill the hollow. St. John of the Cross, he, ex- he describes this experience and he calls it the dark night of the soul. In the words of the psalmist, he says, I call out all day, my God, but you never answer. It's like total abandonment. Heaven is close to you. Or at least that's what it feels like to your heart. And the question is Why? Why do we go through these seasons of spiritual desolation? And the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But this I know. (laughs) I know that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You cannot summon the wind, although some people try In scripture, how do they describe the wind? He says, he blows where he wishes. You know, you can't instantly make God appear when you like and how you like it. He's not at your back and call. If he were, you would be worshipping Aladdin, a genie that you can just summon. You will not be in communion with the living God. He comes when he likes. He comes how he likes, and he does as he likes. You cannot control him. Our job is to you. Our job is to you. I used to think that I can conjure him up by religious technique. When two or three are gathered in his name, surely he will be here. He will never leave me nor forsake me. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Oh, I say these three things come up here. <laughs> Your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. <laughs> you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So, yes, that time you say that, now it must be true, right? I used to think that I can conjure up the imminence of God, the intimacy of God by religious technique and by my theological acumen. But it just doesn't work that way. He's the living God. I have to trust that in his wisdom, he's taking me through a journey, whether or not it seems he's super close or he seems really far, that he's doing it for a reason. And St. John's of the Cross, he describes a few things that happens when you experience this, this season of spiritual desolation. He says, first thing, God starts to strip our dependence on external results and techniques. You realize that what you require is not a good message. What you require is not your emotion to be moved. What you require is not a community to make you feel loved. What you require is God. He withdraws himself and he retains all of those things. and say, ha, see, it's not enough. What you desire is me. And it strips you of your external dependence that I realize that I cannot, by my technique, conquer God. I have to yield to allow God to conquer me. Second thing that happens is that it starts to refine our faith. There is the possibility that your faith is destroyed in this time. You start to ask yourself, is prayer a psychological trick? Do I actually hear from God? How come last time I can hear from God, now I can't? Am I just making things up? Is it a, is it a voice in my own head? Is it the music manipulating my emotions? Is it a series of coincidences that led me to my salvation? Does God really love me? Does He even exist? In the possibility of destroying your faith, he will refine it. He's a God of resurrection. The third thing that happens, I believe, is that the very dryness in your prayer life will produce the habit of prayer. How many know that it's easy to pray when revival is happening? It's like you have to stop yourself. You also cannot, the voice just come out. Uh, you just you can't stop yourself. But what happens when the dry season comes? I believe that we need to do what we've learned in the light of His love. We must continue to do it in the darkness of His seeming absence. And I think it matures our faith to one that's independent of feeling. Um, but this one thing that I know which is that while the darkness might be necessary, the wilderness might be necessary, it's not meant to be permanent. As surely as the sun will rise, the dawning of His grace will come. The dark night of the soul will surely give rise to the rays of His radiant love, like the rising of the sun. It must happen. Well, I believe our church, regardless of where you're at, we are called to this place of utter dependence. And I really feel like it's something unique about this house, that our love will be our witness. You see, there are many ways to witness to people the authenticity of the gospel. You can use arguments and clever words <laughs> to convince people. You can use your wisdom and your splendor as King Solomon did to the Queen of Sheba. You can use signs and wonders. You can use prophecy, as in 1 Corinthians, to lay bare the secrets of people's hearts and they are convicted. You can use community and love to make people feel the love of God. And all of these things are legitimate ways to witness and I believe that we need all of these aspects.
But I believe that one thing that's unique about this house is that we are called to have a brand of witness that looks like a desperate love for God. That people are going to walk in and say, the defining place is these people love God. I don't know what about it. I don't experience it. I don't feel it. But these people are really off their rocker or this God must be real and he's much better than I ever thought. How can people love God so much? It's got to start to make them wonder about his beauty and lead them on a, a search for it. I think that this is, when I first walked into the city church, this is what struck me. I was like, these people love God. These people are desperate for him. There is, there is something of God in here. There's, there's, a, there's a common objection for prayer, and it's this. We have such an action-oriented world, you know, like KPI. Um, and we ask, can you, just, can you do more than just pray? You know, people sit in the prayer room. All they do is pray. <laughs> it's like, okay, do you do something else? Mike Bickle describes prayer as the weak way of prayer because seemingly you're not doing anything. Right? In and of yourself, you're not doing anything. It's like, oh, you pray for the harvest, why don't you actually go and share Christ? Oh, you pray for like, the famine, why don't you actually go and distribute food? Why is it, can we do more than prayer? I couldn't, I, I couldn't find the, the source of this quote, but someone said this. He said, you can do a lot more than just pray, but you cannot do anything until you've prayed. I really feel like we cannot go wrong with this one. Like if you pray, right, you cannot go wrong. You will not miss the mark if you pray. You just cannot by definition. So I'm going to offer you three thoughts. First is Leonard Ravenhill, my favorite. He's talking, he's telling Dr. Tozer, and he's absolutely convinced. He says, five minutes into eternity, when we see the glory of God and we see the priorities of heaven, nobody will look back and regret any time he spent in prayer. You will look back and say, oh, I wish I didn't go for a prayer meeting. It's such a waste of time. I wish I caught the ball game instead. Nobody would say that. The second thing I believe is that no man can truly enter into a life of prayer and end up being ineffective in the real world. I think both history and scripture attest that the people who have had the most vibrant prayer lives have also made an indelible mark on history. It is impossible for you to just pray, so to speak. In the place of prayer, God will transform you to become like Him. And all it took for Him was three years to change the course of, of eternity. Um, but yet there are many people who give their lives to prayer and never really seem to achieve that much in, in our world. But I believe that there were thousands and thousands of nameless, faceless people who, I would say, faded into obscurity in their, on their knees that when heaven's history books are open, that they will be vindicated. You know, there's this common trope that history is written by the victor as well. History is going to be written by Jesus. And the way that he writes history is going to be quite different from the way many people have seen it. And the question is, what do you value, God? What do you value? I'm going to get quite specific now. Um, I believe that as a Pentecostal congregation, although we're non-denominational, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> we have been blessed with the gift of tongues and it is our responsibility to steward it you steward it by exercising it so I was in the army right and then we had to go through this thing called combat skills badge so you train to march one aspect of it is to march you march 32 kilometers 
after you march 32 kilometers, you get a badge, which says, I did it. <laughs> but you never do it again. And I don't think I can do it now. <laughs> if you make me wear the full battle order, I don't think I can march 32 kilometers. My leg will become a blister. Uh, the, the gift of tongues is not a badge. The gift of tongues is not something that you train and then you psych yourself out and then you say the Matthew 7, 7 thing, how the Father will give you the Holy Spirit, you get the thing and then you're like, okay, been there, done that. Put it on a badge and never do it again. The gift of tongues is a lifeline. You've got to see it as a lifeline. I personally have been convicted that for a period of time I was seeking the Lord so intensely for the gift of tongues. And after I received it, I was praying in tongues every day. But slowly it just waned. Yeah. And I think it's very troubling that um, if we pray in tongues more in a congregational setting than in our private prayer lives. Because if you read the scripture, actually it says the, the language of angels, um, praying in tongues is to edify yourself. You're actually not supposed to, yeah, it doesn't edify anyone else. Yeah. And I think it's troubling. And there have been seasons in my life, it's troubling that when I go to a public prayer meeting, I pray in tongues to edify myself. And that's the majority of the time I pray in tongues. And I feel convicted. I don't think we should feel condemned. But I think it's a recognition that, hey, look, you're in a war and you have a loaded gun. Use it. Yeah, a lot of us, we're in a war and we're trying to throw a stick... You know, but you have a loaded gun and you're not using it. Right? Because like this is a badge. This badge. Got the, the rifle on my chest. <laughs> but I don't use it, but you have a loaded gun. And I'm really absolutely convinced um, about, about the power of praying in tongues. And I just want to just say one thing about this. In Romans 8, it says, Tongues is the way in which the Spirit prays through us in our weakness. The, why why is the power of tongues so powerful. Why can't I just pray with understanding? You need to have both. But why is praying in tongues absolutely critical? Because when I pray with understanding my words, I'm limited by two things. I'm limited by what I know in the natural. If I don't know what is happening, I cannot intelligibly intercede for it. The second thing is I am limited by my vocabulary. I can feel certain things in my spirit, but I don't know how to express it. And so I'm so limited in my ability to pray. But when I pray in tongues, the Holy Spirit prays for us. He transcends these limitations. You, you are able, because he, takes, he bypasses your brain, you are able to pray for things which you do not know and you cannot express. And that is why you speak in mysteries. And I think that if we were to, God were to peel back the, the curtain and for us to comprehend some of the things that we are actually saying in the language of angels when we pray in tongues, we will be mind blown. Some things might even be too great for our knowledge. Yeah. Um, am I? I'm going to be done soon. Is this working? Okay. <laughs> Awkward. Okay. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is purity of heart. Um, this whole idea of drawing close to God, the dependence of God, has a criteria. Not everyone can draw close to God. Right? The Bible says, Blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God. In the 24th Psalm, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. There is a criteria to ascend the hill of the Lord and to draw close to Him. 
There are consequences in the Old Testament. People get struck dead when they approach the mountain of God flippantly. But I think in our culture, we have emphasized purity of heart as perfection and spotlessness. But I recognize the religious spirit in that because if you say that you need to be spotless in your motives and in the condition of your heart, how many of you say we qualify? And you see, it's, it's an immediate lie of the devil when this belief leads to his entire church saying, I disqualify, I disqualify myself from ascending the hill of the Lord. It has to be untrue. The brilliant um, philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard, he says this. He says, the purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of your heart is to desire but one thing. It's Psalm 24 when he says, One thing I've asked of the Lord is one thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. It doesn't matter if you are broken, if you've got issues, if you are bitter, if you are sad, if you are numb. It matters if I ask you today, what is the one thing that you desire in your life and your answer is God. You don't need to be perfect. There, there's a guy in our church um, who, who works for um, an organization, a charity organization for children's cancer. I'm not going to name him. <laughs> and we meet on Thursdays to pray sometimes. Um, he told us this story. So one of his jobs is to count the money, count the money of um, the people who donate to the cancer foundation. So usually people give checks, right? If checks like $5,000, then he just bank it in. And here it is one day, I think, he sat on his table, it's a bag of coins. It's like 5 cents, 10 cents, 20 cents. And it's like, I think like 100 plus dollars. How much was it, Abu Ghek? I think like $170 or something. Uh, so he like very annoyed. He's like, oh, help lah. He's like, give me coin, $170 of coins. He's like, then he has to count, right? He's like, is this a troll? You know like Mr. Bean, he goes with a one cent coin again. Yeah. Um, until his colleague told him the story behind it. And said that this came from a child um, whose mother was a cancer patient. And this was his pocket money. And so every day, all he has is five cent, ten cent. Every day, and then he, he just saved it. And this is like his savings for the entire year. And he gave it there as like his offering. As we were in the prayer meeting, um, there was this sense that our prayer meeting was so weak. Like, prayer meeting is like the most awkward meeting in the face of the earth. It's like so awkward, it's excruciating. It's not like a professional prayer meeting, you know what I mean, where they're like, someone has prepped something to edify everyone, you know, that's the music. It's so awkward. It's just like everyone gather to like seek God. And like this is so unprofessional. And I just felt like it was so weak. It was so weak. But beneath that, there was a consistency that, that told of a hunger. And we just said that, well, God, our prayers are so weak and our gatherings are so weak, but all we desire is you. All we desire is you. Um, and I felt like that child that all I could give was this five cents to God. 
and I think in that prayer meeting, we just sat there and just wept for the whole time um, to just say that what we desire is God. I feel like today that is the same um, message that God has that He doesn't require your yes to be really strong. He doesn't require your yes to be perfect. But He just requires a yes. He requires that your heart is there for Him. Yeah. Can, can, can I get the, the band on stage? I'm just going to lead us in. Um, I just give, give thanks. thanks. I just give uh, an opportunity for us to respond. Um, as I was preparing this message and I was praying, I felt God highlight three specific groups of people. You don't need to respond to give me face. Um, I just want to give an invitation to you to respond to God. The first group of people that, the first group of people that I feel um, I like to pray for, are the people who have, who believe in God, and who knows that He's real, have been walking with Him, but who've always withheld a part of your life. There's this fear that if I give off my entire life and I relinquish complete control to Him that it's a really scary life to live. Heidi Baker used to say this, that we tithe our money, but we don't tithe our heart. He gives 10%. He requires 10% of, of your money, but He requires all of your heart. I feel like there's a call from the Lord today for and a grace for people who have been, know that God has been pursuing them, know that He is good in your head, but you don't experience that in your heart because you've not allowed him to have 100% of it. And I feel like there's this fear of surrender and utter abandonment. But I just want to encourage you today that you will never feel more free than when you fully surrender to God. There is a blessed joy when you fully let go of everything, every care, every desire, and you just say, I just want God. The second group of people that, that I feel um, I want to pray for are people who are struggling with unanswered prayer. I feel like specifically for this group, you have had vibrant prayer lives previously. You sought the Lord and you've had amazing times of prayer, but there was a season in your life where you hit the roadblock of unanswered prayer. A philosopher once said this, that every war, every death is a monument to someone's unanswered prayer. It's a reality that we're confronted with, but that hurt of unanswered prayer has been keeping you from a place of prayer because every time you say I go to God to seek Him I'm reminded of that void and I feel like there's just a grace today regardless of whether you feel it or not and you're afraid whether responding would, would open up that hurt again I just feel a tenderness of the Lord that He may not answer your prayer which you've had in the past but He wants to heal you the third group of people are the people who are experiencing uh, what I described the, the dark night of the soul I feel like some of us will resonate with this message and you say I agree with you cognitively in my head but I don't feel alive in my heart I'm in a rut I desire intimacy with God in my will but when I go to a place of prayer heaven seems closed I believe that the Lord is refining you in the place of prayer that your love for Him will be independent of your feeling 
that it will be a worship for you to say, regardless of how I feel, I just want you.